Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. If you've been with us for any length of time, you know that we are going through the book of Genesis, and this week I'm supposed to get 22 verses done in Genesis chapter 6. I'm not getting near to getting it done. And I was just over there looking forward to what's coming, and um, I think we're about to throw a landmine or a grenade into our plants because I just don't see how we go through Noah in, what, three sermons? And it is so applicable to our time today, to the day, to the day that we live in. It just is, it doesn't need any translation to to what we're living in the midst of. It's so pertinent, so applicable, so much contemporary. Anyhow, would you open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6? We're going to read verses 1 to 22, and I'm going to preach on verses 1 through 7. And would you please stand as we read God's Word? This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. Now, it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky. For I am sorry that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms, and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life. From under heaven, everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. 
And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds, after their kind, and of the animals, after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground, after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible, and gather it to yourself, and it shall be for food for you and for them. Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So now we enter into the historical account of the universal flood. The historical account of the universal flood. Okay? Now, the reason I'm saying that is it would be very easy to creep into the postmodern young narrative story kind of mythical kind of, you know, where you sort of tip the hat to the new constitution. You know, you talk about the, 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 the biblical narrative. And doesn't it go down easier than the historical account? You know, the, the, the Bible story about the flood. No, it's... The, his, the history of the flood. Doesn't that go down easier than the universal flood? You go back into the ancient world and you will find a number of accounts of a flood in the ancient world about this time. But they're very different. First of all, they're localized. You know, they're particular to the place where the account has its origin. But the Bible's very clear in saying this is a universal flood. It's across the earth. And so we're entering into the historical account of the universal flood, all right? Just so you know where I stand, all right? And because of this flood, the world gets its second Adam. Now, I know you're used to the second Adam being Jesus, and Jesus is the second Adam. But if you think about it, if Adam is the father of the race, here we get the second father because every single person alive today, every man can trace his ancestry back to Noah and to Adam, right? Now, we should note that we're not that far down the line of generations from Adam, the first man, and so it wasn't long before things had declined to such a degree that God wiped man off the face of the earth because of his great wickedness. In verse 1, now it came about when men began to multiply. The word men there is the word what? You should all know this by now. What's the word men in Hebrew there? Just say the Hebrew to me. Adam, Adam. That's the word. And so if you're going to be a preacher of righteousness like Noah was, if you're going to be a preacher of righteousness in an evil day, and the particular nature of the evil today is to absolutely deny that man is the head of woman, you're going to pay particular attention to using the word Adam for the race. Do you understand that? 
Because if you don't, it just contributes to the gender neutrality, to the androgyny of our culture. And so if you use the construction human beings, notice what you have avoided. You have avoided naming the race as God's word names the race. All through the Old Testament, the Hebrew name is Adam, Adam. All right? And the way I distinguish between the proper name of the first man, which was Adam, and the name of the race, which is Adam, is I, I usually say Adam for the man and Adam for the race, giving a different emphasis. But if you were reading, a good way to do it would be to capitalize the proper name for the first man, but to have it be a lowercase a when you're using the word for the race. The race is named by the first man, not by Eve, and not a combination of Adam-Eve. The, the race by God is not named Adam-Eve, it's not named Eve, it's named Adam. If you're going to be a preacher of righteousness, you will confess your faith by the word you use for the race of Adam. Now, how do you do that in English? Well, the easiest way to do it is man. But the minute you call the race man, all right, men, you feel it? All right, men. All right, brothers, you feel it, right? You all feel it. It's like, yikes, he's got gray hair. Yikes, he's an old curmudgeon. He's old and crotchety. That's what Andrew Henry said I was after the first service. A crotchety old guy. So when I was young, in high school, my future wife hammered it into me that I was never to re refer to even little girls as girls. They were to be women. And so from the time I was just knee-high to a grasshopper, I was referring to us as persons. And as human beings, I never said man. Because I'm the one that created the garbage that all of you suck in. I was wicked. I was androgynous. I had long hair and an earring, and I was like, you know... But you know what Bob Dylan says? Ah, but I was so much older then. I'm younger than that now. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And so now I'm happy to confess that I am actually man. And I'm happy to confess that my wife is man. And I make a point of using the word man to include women. Because I want to confess my faith in an evil day. I want to be a preacher of righteousness in an evil day. I don't always say man. Often I say human beings and persons. Just to show them that this crotchety old man knows their game. And then I quick switch back to man. Okay? The word is Adam. It's the name God gave the race. He named it after the first male, Adam. Okay. Now it came about when Adam began to multiply on the face of the land. It's very interesting when scripture is saying that 
every inclination of their mind was evil, that man, Adam at that time, is doing something right. What is he doing? Well, twice God commands us to be fruitful and multiply. We see in Genesis 1.22, God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply. And then Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so here we say that men began to multiply on the face of the land, and that's good. And then it says this, and daughters were born to them. Now that sticks out. Because scripture, being patriarchal, in other words, keeping special track of the representative of the race, which is Adam, and men, almost always the genealogies are male, and the women that appear to them have particular reasons for appearing. A man doesn't have to have a particular reason to appear in a biblical genealogy. You can just be a man, he's there. But a woman typically, like for instance Rahab, right? has a particular reason for being in the genealogy, okay? And here we see that despite the genealogies in Genesis being men, all of a sudden we come across this, and daughters were born to them. Well, that's weird. Why are daughters mentioned? Well, we go on and we see the reason. Daughters were born to them, verse 2, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. Now, this is an old story, isn't it, huh? Right? The men saw. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha, for she was taken from Ish. The men, the sons of God, saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves. So this is the reason that daughters are mentioned. Daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Now this verse has a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of content. This is a heavy verse, so let's get into it, okay? First of all, the sons of God. Who are the sons of God? If you keep reading, all right, you will say, you will see that the next verse says this, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. And so these first two verses are leading into God being exasperated. God is done with it. He is sick and tired of dealing with the wickedness of man. And so what we're seeing here in the first two verses is leading into the declaration, the judgment of God, that it, the wickedness is just too much. And so when it says the sons of God, immediately we're wondering, well, what's that all about? You know, that's not a normal way to refer to men taking women as wives. So who are the sons of God? Now, it can be translated either sons of God or sons of gods. And there are basically three possibilities for what this means. First, these sons of God may be rulers of, of the land, rich people and rulers, leaders. Often in scripture, this construction in Hebrew is used to refer to the leaders of a nation or of a race, and they're called sons of God to designate their high standing. All right, number two, this may be the descendants of the godly line of Seth. 
in opposition to the ungodly line of, Jody preached on this last week, the ungodly line of what? Of Cain, okay? And so it may be referring to the people of God, the covenant people, all right, of Seth. Third, this sons of God's may be non-material, non-Adamic, non-fleshly spiritual beings from the heavens. In other words, non-Adam beings such as angels, evil spirits, or demons. Now, if the first or the second option is chosen, the meaning would be that the people of God were corrupted by intermarriage with the people of Cain. What is clear here is the unhindered choice and marriage of the beautiful daughters of men by men who took what or whom they wanted. They were not getting permission from the fathers of these daughters, but rather they saw the beauty of these daughters of Adam, and it says they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Now that's, that's significant, isn't it? They took. They saw they were beautiful and they took. This is referring back to another passage that we already studied. Do you remember? It says that about Eve. She saw that the fruit was delightful and she took and she ate. And this is the language again of these sons of gods that they see it's beautiful and they take. All right? Now, it is always a mark of wickedness when a man simply takes the wife, the woman that he wants. What, what happened with Isaac and Abraham? Abraham sent his, his, his servant to find a wife for his son. And all through scripture, you will see this theme of parents negotiating for a spouse for their daughter and for their son. And if you go back into church history, you'll find again and again in church history that children who go ahead and marry without regard to the desire and the permission of their parents are judged. Always in church history, children are expected to submit to the decision of their parents in getting a spouse. All right? So, for instance, the fifth commandment, which says, honor your father and mother, again and again, you'll find church fathers expositing, teaching that commandment by saying that children are to submit to their parents in the choice of the person that they marry. Okay? Now, bring yourself forward into a day when feminism has obliterated the authority of fathers in the household, and then realize that feminism isn't really the issue. The real issue is the hatred for God's authority in our world. And that feminism is just an, a manifestation of that hatred, okay? And what you realize is it's impossible for a man today to carry authority in his home. <laughs> it's impossible for a woman to carry authority. Most women who carry authority in their home are only trying to put a finger in the dike of the rebellion that permeates our culture. Okay, And so what we see today is if we have a young couple in this church that have a sense that they want parental permission because they're learning to recover submission to authority and authority in their lives, and so they go to the dad, you know, the young man goes to the, to the man and says, you know, I would like permission to court your daughter, or I'd like permission to date her, or I'd like permission to, to marry her. What does the dad typically do? 
typically the dad is flabbergasted. He's like, what? You know, what? What? And, and, and it doesn't matter whether he's a churchgoer or not. He's just like, what on earth are you doing? Now, sometimes, the minute he's asked, what he ends up doing is he ends up uh, turning into uh, Barney Fife. You know, he didn't know he had any authority or leadership in the home, and so, well, now that you mention it, no! You know, you may not date her. You know? And it's often the case that when we have no sense of our own authority and leadership, and then somebody treats us as if we were an authority, then we get all controlling. You know, and it's like we try to fill the role that other people are, are, are uh, expecting from us. But we've never filled it before in our lives. And so we don't know how to fill it. And so we're like, boom, 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 boom. You know, which is completely undignified and stupid, you know? And so the problem today is, Scripture is clear that it judges these sons of gods because they took the beautiful women. They lusted after them, they thought they were beautiful, and they just took them. And that's a judgment of Scripture, that they just took what they wanted. Marriage is supposed to be the meeting of whole systems and communities. It is supposed to be the most intense investment that a community can have. And this is the reason why, dearly beloved, we're gathered here in the presence of God, in the sight of God, and in what? The presence of these witnesses to join this man and this woman in holy matrimony. So you got all the witnesses. And then what does everybody do? Everybody takes time to fly across the country, across the world for the wedding. What else do they do? Well, you've got all these people here and all these people here. You know, tons of people who spend hundreds of dollars to look the way they look. <laughs> and then you have all these, all these presents Unbelievable investment in a marriage, isn't there? Right? The average marriage 10 years ago was $28,000. Mary Lee and I got out of each one for about five. But still, five, that's about the cost of a funeral. We invest our time, our travel, our money, because you have two systems joining together until death. And so it's always been the habit of cultures to make the investment as high as you possibly can. Why? So that the couple is completely embarrassed if they break it up. Why? Well, because once two families come together, you don't want them breaking it up. Because then who's going to take the children? And who's going to care for the grandparents? But the sons of gods took whom they wanted. They were not about to submit themselves to the father or to the mother. They were going to do what they wanted. It's negative. 
There's an example similar to this in the Old Testament of Samson. Judges 14, 1 to 3, then Samson went down to Timnah and what? Saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. And so he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. Sound like he's requesting permission? Then his father and his mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you go to take a wife from what? The uncircumcised Philistines. And this is to go outside of the boundary of the people of God. And so Christian parents, when they make a decision about who marries whom, they're making a decision whether or not this person that your son desires is in the covenant community, is, belongs to God, is a believer, is a confessing Christian, or is a circumcised Jew. But not Samson. He's going out. He says, she looks good to me. And I'm going to take her. And so you go get her. And they say, can't you find a member of the covenant community? And then he says, but Samson said to his father, what? Get her for me. <laughs> and do you remember what it says? Get her for me. Do you remember what it says? For she looks good to me. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a man. You know, every man understands that, right? We all understand that? All right. So the emphasis in this historical account is that these sons of God took what they wanted just as Eve saw the fruit. She took, it looked good, she took. These women were the daughters of Adam, and this is what Scripture says, but who were the sons of God? And far and away the most common interpretation, both among Jews prior to Christ's time and students of Scripture since, is that these actually were spiritual beings. Um, it's not what John Murray says in Principles of Conduct, but why do you think men have, have especially modern men, have, have done everything they can to escape this being spiritual beings? I mean, you know, I'm not going to say that this is for sure the reason, but I think it's fascinating that both Meredith Klein and, and John Murray have separate interpretations that are not spiritual beings. It's interesting that Luther, in his comments on this, talks about the fact that uh, basically that we're materialists. And I think it's very uncomfortable for us to have any thoughts whatsoever that are not material. I think that we're so committed to um, what we can see and touch and feel and smell that the minute you start talking about demon possession or demons or witches or somebody returning from the grave, anything that's supernatural in Scripture, our presumption is to explain it away with some naturalistic explanation. And we still believe in supernaturalism, but we try to limit it to something like, you know, creation and the resurrection and maybe Lazarus, you know, but Kim, do we really have to go there here? You know, do we, does it really have to? And if you go to Scripture, what you find is that, 
This is the construction in Hebrew that's used to refer to Satan and his, his spirits in the presence of God in the book of Job. You remember at the beginning of, uh, uh, of the book of Job, it says, Job 1.6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Same thing is said in Job chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of gods came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And it's a similar construction, the same construction as... Psalm 89.7, which says a God greatly feared in the council of the holy ones. In the council of the sons of gods, the holy ones. Okay? So what you see here is you see a, a, a throne room scene where evil spirits and Satan are somehow in the presence of God and engaged in what goes on there. Very clear from Job. All right? And if we go to the New Testament, we read in 2 Peter 2.4 what we believe is a reference to these angels refusing to stick to their allotted place that God had determined. It says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. And then even more clearly, Jude chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. You see, a parallel construction between the spiritual beings having sex with women, daughters of Eve. Parallel construction, men having sex with men in Sodom. Same thing. They abandon what God has determined through his order of creation, and they give themselves to strange flesh. Same thing. Okay? And then he says, they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now listen. Don't tell me that you love homosexuals, and so you refer to them as gay. The text I just read is God's word. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It says they're given to us as examples. How can they be given to us as examples if you've conformed your language to everybody around you? What you're doing is you're refusing to proclaim, to preach, to show, to speak the example God has given to homosexuals that you love. If you refuse to make the parallels that Scripture proclaims, if you refuse to call homosexuality sodomy, which it has been called since before the time of Christ, all through history, men, that includes you women, all through history, men have used Sodom as the example God intended it to be to remind us not to go after strange flesh. And do you know why we need that? 
We need that because all of us would go after strange flesh unless we were so horrified. And so when you confess it by using the word, you are, you're putting it in technicolor. This wonderful example that God gave us. But no, we're just so committed to fitting in, to going along, getting along, to go along. We just don't want to appear to be crotchety and old. And so we are urbane and cosmopolitan. We are, I mean, my hairdresser's gay. Some of my best friends are homosexuals. This is, it's just pathetic. We are just yelling about our desire for the approval of man instead of God. We are just yelling about how we don't give a rip about people going after strange flesh or their souls or their eternity. Every time we talk in a way that conforms to a non-judgmental sort of, you know, we're just, I mean, you know, you know? Like, you know. You know? Right? And so then we come out with these stupid things, like, well, aren't Christians supposed to love people? Aren't we supposed to love the this, this sinner and hate the sin? And, you know, you can be gay and a Christian, And some of my best friends aren't homosexuals. In other words, we don't give a rip about them. We talk about them being our friends. We don't even know them. We don't know their life. We don't know the bacteria in their stomachs. We don't know the incidence of drug and alcohol abuse, and we don't know the incidence of suicide. We don't know the self-loathing. Don't tell me you love homosexuals if you will not use the example that God painted in technicolor with brimstone and fire for all the world to see. Don't you ever tell me that. You don't love homosexuals. You just want to go along to get along. That's the truth. I used to be in the Presbyterian Church of America, and my presbytery used to be Central Indiana Presbytery. And yesterday at their meeting, they adopted this statement. Okay? Preachers of righteousness, right? Pastors and elders. In this evil day, in the midst of homosexual sodomite marriage, and they decided now was the time for them to preach righteousness on homosexuality. And we all agree with that, don't we? We all agree with that. So here's what they say. And this is to be published, all right? The dual issue of homosexual practice and same-sex marriage is one of the defining issues of our time as part of a rapidly changing social landscape. 
While there are a growing number of voices attempting to speak to this from a worldview established by the gospel of the kingdom of God, our churches and leaders need a succinct overview of the biblical perspective as well as a redemptive lens to guide our own relationships with those who have a disposition toward same-sex attraction. Now, if you're listening, you already should know this is stinking. But some of you don't know that yet because you have not, by hard work, trained yourself to discern between good and evil. So now, in case you hadn't gotten it yet, you're about to get it. All right? I'll pick up where I left off. They say, these pastors and elders, we also often find the conversation unnecessarily heated. Unnecessarily heated. Characterized by both attack and retreat. Neither of which make for clarity or helpful dialogue. Thus, we are trying to provide a helpful, unified, gospel-centered perspective for the pastor's sessions and congregants of Central Indiana Presbytery. So then they move into a confession of, of, of other people's sin. You know how often you, people will do this with you? You know, they'll, they'll confess your sin instead of their own, right? Okay. So they have a series of confessions. I'll just read a couple of them. We confess as honest, an honest assessment of recent church history leads us to confess that at different places and different times, the church has often to failed to embody this reconciling presence with respect to current issues of same-sex attraction, homosexual practice, and same-sex marriage. Therefore, we confess our failure to treasure all people as made in the image of God. We confess that the church has often been unloving towards those who have same-sex attraction or have expressed this through homosexual practice. We confess a slowness and frequent neglect of listening, caring, and respect We confess that the church has used scripture in an unwarranted manner by imposing Christian sexual ethics upon those who are not yet Christians. We confess our failure to create a transparent, humble, embracing, and safe environment for people to wrestle through issues and questions of sexuality. What was Noah? What was Noah? He was a preacher of righteousness. Who loved all of the lost at the time of Noah? Did Noah love them or did they all love each other? Who really loved them? How did they know that Noah loved them? Noah loved them. How did they know? Because Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Verse 3, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. 
My spirit shall not strive with man forever. And this is the beginning of the flood. My spirit shall not strive with man forever. Do you think that God owes us striving with us? Do you think if God is fair that he will strive with us forever? You know, one of the wicked parts of a church never excommunicating people is that it leads people to believe that God's spirit will strive with us forever. God's spirit will not strive with us forever. Here's another thing. How was God's spirit striving with all of those who lived at the time of Noah? You know how God's spirit was striving with them? It's really weird. Noah was what? A preacher of righteousness. Do you know how God strives with you today? He strives with you through me, preaching righteousness. That's how he strives with you. Do you have patience for Noah? Do you think the people alive at the time of Noah had patience for him? Now, there's another way of asking that question, and that is, Do you think that Noah enjoyed his life? (laughs) Huh? What do you think? You know what Martin Luther says at this point? Martin Luther says, you know, martyrs have it easy. It's an hour of suffering and they're gone. But Noah and me, says Martin Luther, we just have to do it and do it and do it. And Noah had to do it, what, for centuries. Isn't that interesting? And then Martin Luther says, you know, I have often preached that we would all just die. Now there's a man that you love. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the life and suffering of a preacher of righteousness? He often prays that we would just die. The world is so wicked in the, in, in the uh, slander that it carries out against preachers. It's so wicked. Because what the world says is that the preachers are up there doing what they're doing because they enjoy it. And there are preachers who do enjoy it. There were undoubtedly many, many preachers at the time of Noah who did enjoy it. But why did they enjoy it? They enjoyed it because their sermon was peace, peace. But these people would never attack those preachers and say they enjoy it, they would attack the preacher of righteousness and say he enjoys it. 
And I read, and I don't normally read this much, but last night I read 80 pages of Martin Luther on this text. And do you know what that all those pages are filled with is Martin Luther talking about how terribly difficult it is to live as a preacher of righteousness and how terribly difficult it would have been for Noah. Let me read to you a little bit of, of what he says, okay? So this is, this is like, this is, you know, like, this is like, you know, like, this is like a crotchety old guy. Five centuries old. Okay, so if you want to look down on him, feel free. Okay? If I had not been extraordinarily strengthened by God, I too would long since have been worn out and discouraged by this stubbornness of the unrepentant world. The ungodly grieve the Holy Spirit in us to such an extent that with Jeremiah, we sometimes wish we had never undertaken anything. Therefore, I often pray God that he would permit our generation to die together with us. And also, we are regarded as troublers of Germany today. But it is a good sign when men condemn us and call us agitators The Spirit of God is one who strives with men, reproves them, and condemns them. But men are so constituted that they want to have preached what pleases them. 600,000 men came out of Egypt, and only two entered the land of Canaan. On account of their sins, death prevented all the rest from entering. Let me read a little bit more. I won't read all 80 pages. Okay. He says this. His faith, the promise of the seed of woman, all right? This faith taught Noah to disdain the smugness of the world, which scoffed at him as at a deranged old man. This faith urged him to keep busy with the building of the ark, a structure which those notorious giants undoubtedly ridiculed as the utmost stupidity. This faith strengthened Noah to such an extent that he stood alone in the face of so many examples of the world, and he courageously despised what? It says about our Lord that he despised what? The the shame... Okay, but it doesn't say that here about Noah. It says he despised the opinions of all people. Okay, a little bit more. He says this. He says, the church is always a wall against the wrath of God. It grieves. It agonizes. It prays, it pleads, it teaches, it preaches, it admonishes as long as the hour of judgment has not yet arrived, but is impending. When it sees that these activities are of no avail, what else can it do than grieve deeply over the destruction of impenitent impenitent people? 
seeing a large number of their kinsmen and relatives about to perish increased the grief of the godly fathers. This grief Moses was unable to portray in a better and clearer manner than to state that the Lord was sorry that he had made man. Christians feel the suffering. And it's the unbelievers who don't feel it. You go to funerals today, and the impiety and and godlessness of funerals today, it's one joke after another. There's no higher uh, encomium given to the dead today at funerals than that they had a good sense of humor. You all heard this at the funerals? What a great sense of humor he had. No fear of God. Martin Luther writes, undoubtedly, the descendants of the patriarchs who perished in the flood. So now we're talking about the ungodly. The descendants of the patriarchs who perished in the flood, undoubtedly, they vastly overstated their argument about the prestige of the church. And, you know, we read that and we say, what church? They were all wicked. I say, hey, did you ever read about Israel? The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. There's no such thing as a man that isn't religious. Every man has his temple. Every man claims to be serving God. And that was what was true of these people who were consumed by the flood. They were absolutely certain that they were the true church. And this is what Luther says. He says, undoubtedly, the descendants of the patriarchs who perished in the flood vastly overstated their argument about the prestige of their church. They charged Noah himself with blasphemy and lies. And here's what they said, quote, stating that God is about to destroy the whole world by the flood is the same as saying that God is not compassionate and not a father, but a cruel tyrant. Noah, you're preaching the wrath of God. Has not God promised deliverance from sin and death through the seed of the woman? God's wrath will not swallow up the entire earth. We are God's people. And we have outstanding gifts of God. God would never have granted us these gifts if he had decided to proceed against us in such a hostile manner. And that's the end of Luther putting quotes around what they would have said. And Luther adds, in this manner, the ungodly are wont to apply the promises to themselves. They have a habit of applying the promises to themselves. And because of the reliance on these promises, they disregard and they laugh at all the threats. They just laugh. The careful consideration of all this is profitable to fortify us against being offended by the smugness of the ungodly. For the same things that happened to Noah happened to us. Can you say that? Can you say that? Are you a preacher of righteousness? Are the same things that happened to Noah happening to you? Our adversaries attribute to themselves the name, the people of God, as well as the worship, grace, and everything else that goes with it. To us, on the contrary, they attribute everything that is demonic. When we reprove them for their blasphemy and say that they are the church of Satan, 
They rage against us with every kind of cruelty. Therefore, we lament with Noah and commit our cause to the Lord, just as Christ did on the cross, for what else are we to do? We wait for God to sit in judgment on the earth and to make it clear that he loves the remnant of those who fear him and hates the mass of the unrepentant sinners, even though they boast that they are the church, that they have the promises, and that they have the worship of God. Thus he, God, destroyed the entire original world and made his promise concerning the seed come true. For that wretched and tiny remnant, Noah and his sons. Before I came in today, I was talking to one of the men of our church. And he was just thinking about us. And he said, you know, he said, this story of the judgment of the entire race and of all the animals by God is this one of those stories in Scripture that we just go sort of like, how did, you, how did you put it, Andrew? What did you say? Yeah, it's, it's in the Bible, so I guess like, you know, let's skip over it, you know. And then he said, every last person consumed by the wrath of God. And he said, all of us find that scandalous. We do not approve of what God did. We do not approve. Don't you dare tell me that you approve of what God did in the days of Noah. You do not approve. But here's what I love about God. He is not bothered. He just doesn't run around looking for our approval. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his thoughts above our thoughts and his ways above our ways. And God is jealous for his own glory. And those who shake their fist at God will be utterly destroyed. And if you find yourself confessing that you don't approve of what God did in the days of Noah, that is the most wonderful thing on the face of the earth because there's a little bit of honesty and humility in you. Just a tiny little bit. If you admit that you think what God did was wrong, there's a little bit of hope for you. Because you see that you are not God. And that's the principal thing that God is trying to do with us. The whole account of Genesis is of us trying to rise up into the heavenlies and be God. To know what God knows, to be what God has, the power that God, to raise the Tower of Babel. I mean, we're all about displacing God with our own glory. And can you imagine if Apple does a car? <laughs> oh, man. Who do we think we are? Who do we think we are? The more we raise ourselves up 
the more God will resist us. But if we think to ourselves, you know, that's true. I actually think that God was not very nice. And I think he should have let the children off. Or at least the animals. Why did he do that? Then there's hope for us. Because then we're beginning to live in the presence of the Lord. (laughs) You say, no, 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 we're rebelling. I say, yeah, but we're rebelling with honesty. We're actually going to God with our anger, our opposition, our sin, our pride, and we're saying, this is me, help me. And that's about as much as we can do. (laughs) Right? Can't we do that? Can't we do that? And listen, yes, this church is tiny. But it's a huge, huge larger than, mo- than, the, than the church of Noah. There were only, what, seven, eight of them. And so who cares who laughs at us? I don't care. I mean, I do. It hurts. You know, nanny, nanny, poo-poo but I don't care. You know, I would rather be kissing and hugging a bunch of people who really don't think God should have wiped out the world than be in a church with a bunch of people who think that they got what they deserved. Because those people aren't even thinking. They can't even picture the flood. It's like a a Hollywood epic for them. Once you begin to really meditate on all those little children, reading this book about Germany that Jürgen gave me. He keeps giving me books about Germany, you know. Pretty soon I'm going to become of German extract, <laughs> you know. And this latest book is a book of all these, uh, like, iconic things from German history. So it's like Prince of Duray and, you know, uh, the Brandenburg Gate and, you know, and all this stuff, you know, and they have big pictures and it's done by this curator from the British Museum, all right? And um, I don't remember, I'm sorry, I, obviously the book is lost on me, but one of the chapters is about this picture. And some of you will know what it is, and that's fine, I'm ignorant. But it's a picture of the flood. And a father so the water has come up just short of the top of a mountain. And a father has his son in his hands. And he's trying to get him on top of the mountain. And on the top of a mountain, there's, I don't remember whether it's a lion or a tiger. And this father wants to save his son, but he can't because even if he gets him on top of the mountain, the water's going to rise, and then the lion's going to eat his son. And we just go right over the top of this. We just think God's so nice. We try to show everybody how tolerant we are. And then, whoop, and judgment's going to come. Like in the days of Noah, that's what Jesus says. Like in the days of Noah. 
We don't love anyone. Don't you tell me you love people. You love yourself. You love your convenience. You love going along to get along. That's the truth about us today. Listen, there are people in this church who have given themselves to strange flesh. They're sitting here right now. And this church has loved them and called them to repent. And they have repented. Okay? Wouldn't it be wonderful if this church had more homosexuals than it had heterosexuals in it? And all of them were building an ark. And the ark was the church. And there was no shame because they're washed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So listen, we're, we're entering a new initiative. Clear Note Church loves Bloomington. So love people. Enter into their sin with the love and holiness of Jesus Christ. Bear their burdens with them. Preach righteousness. Give them hope. Okay? Hey, can I get a witness? Okay, okay, let's eat.